0: Hello I'm John Dennis, it's Friday the 29th of January, today a special programme focusing on the issue of assisted suicide. You'll hear from policy makers They should have the right to choose a death with dignity and not have someone else telling them that they don't have that right, it is their life. From
1: ethical experts You can want to die for partly, not entirely, but partly
0: altruistic reasons. And from those most directly affected by the law.
2: I cannot open a a bottle of tablets, I can't take tablets out of a blister pack, but I'm certainly not ready to die.
1: Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk.
0: In the last couple of weeks, we've had two cases with different verdicts. Frances Inglis was jailed for nine years for murder after injecting her brain-damaged 22-year-old son Thomas with a lethal dose of heroin. Last week, Kay Gilderdale pleaded guilty to assisting suicide but was acquitted of murdering her daughter Lynn, an ME sufferer whom she'd given morphine. In this show, you'll hear from Debbie Purdy, the multiple sclerosis patient who successfully argued for the right to know whether her husband would be prosecuted if he accompanied her to the Swiss clinic Dignitas, which assists patients who want to die. Baroness Warnock, Britain's leading expert on medical ethics and a vocal supporter of euthanasia. Baroness Finley, who chairs the all-party parliamentary group on Dying Well. She says the legalisation of assisted suicide would be dangerous and unnecessary. Dr Evan Harris, the Lib Dem MP, who supports the right of terminally ill patients to end their lives. And David Morris, who has spinal muscular atrophy and chairs Independent Living Alternatives, which promotes the right of disabled people to live independently. They were all guests at a roundtable discussion hosted by The Observer, the Guardian's sister newspaper. With me in the studio is Afwa Hirsch, our legal affairs correspondent. Afwa, what was the difference between these two cases? We've got Francis Inglis guilty of murder and Kay Gilderdale acquitted.
3: Sure. I think there's three categories of case that just broadly we need to think about. Um, the first is assisted suicide. That's the Debbie Purdy type scenario where a mentally competent, but usually terminally ill adult wants to take their own life. And then we've got cases like the Gilderdale case, which we had most recently, which is really assisted dying, where a mentally competent adult wants somebody to help them end their life shorten their life or end their life Um, but it's different from assisted suicide because the person will actually administer whatever ends their life Uh, whereas assisted suicide obviously it's somebody helping you take your own life and then the third category is euthanasia or controversially murder, where somebody administers something, not necessarily at the request of the person. Um, And the Inglis case was more in that category because um, Mrs. Inglis's son was not mentally competent. He was in a vegetative state. He hadn't actually indicated that he wanted to die. So she'd taken the decision to end his life. I think that's why she was charged with murder and ultimately convicted and why Mrs. um, Gildedale was acquitted of murder because the jury thought that she was acting on the wishes of her daughter and I think that's key is whether the person who's dying is competent and able to make the decision themselves as to whether they want to end their lives.
0: Although Mrs Gilderdale did plead guilty to assisting, assisted suicide. She
3: did yeah and I think I think that case does seem to be more in the category of cases like Debbie Purdy, where we have somebody who's made their own decision that they want their life to end, but they need help. Um, As to whether you're helping somebody take their own life or whether you're doing it for them is is a bit of a fine line. And the Dignitas cases we've seen, people go to Dignitas, um, and there's a whole kind of infrastructure set up that allows somebody to help them take their own life. But whether the person actually administers the drug themselves or they give it to the person who wants to die, is, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a continuum, really, and there aren't any fine lines. And I think that's really what the legal problem here is. Essentially, we've got quite clumsy legal tools dealing with these really complex and very sensitive situations. And the law only distinguishes between somebody who takes their own life and somebody who has their life taken. And there's not any recognition of a category in between. And I think that's why we're really seeing um, cases that create some very difficult ethical issues.
0: And before we hear from Debbie Purdy, can you sort of recap for us um, how the Debbie Purdy case um, changed the law?
3: Well, the Debbie Perdue case didn't actually change the law, but what it did was force prosecutors to clarify their policy. So the law is still that if you help somebody take their own life, that is a criminal offence. It's punishable by up to, seven to up to 14 years in jail, but unlike murder, there's no mandatory sentence. So in a case like Francis Gildedale, um, a judge can impose a very lenient sentence if they feel that the circumstances warranted it. So... In Debbie Purdy's case, she argued that in cases where somebody's traveled abroad and had a loved one assist their death, there are never prosecutions in this country. But the law remains that it is illegal and you, in theory could be prosecuted and sentenced by this very heavy sentence of up to 14 years. So Debbie Purdy's case forced the Crown Prosecution Service to clarify when they would prosecute so that somebody in Debbie Purdy's situation would know with more certainty that if they do have assistance in taking their own life, their, their relative or loved one wouldn't be prosecuted.
0: Keir Starmer, the Director of Public Prosecutions, outlined public interest factors for and against prosecution in assisted suicide cases. This followed Debbie Purdy's challenge in the House of Lords.
4: Assisted suicide um, is an offence set out uh, in statute, and only Parliament can change the law. I'm not able to do so uh, and nothing in the interim policy should be taken as me doing so. Uh, Neither am I able to provide individuals with a guarantee that they will or will not be prosecuted if they do or do not do certain acts. Um, However, uh, when Parliament passed the law in 1961, it recognised that the ways in which people commit suicide and how others may assist are very varied. It therefore provided a a discretion whether or not to prosecute by requiring the Director of Public Prosecutions to consent uh, to any prosecution.
0: Where does the current legal situation leave those who want to die? Debbie Purdy had this to say.
2: I think the guidelines aren't sufficient to give a, a strong enough framework or enough safeguards but they're the best that can be done with the current law as it exists because our DPP does not have the power, neither should he, um, to change the law. And I think that is the problem, that the things that have happened in the last few weeks in particular, they show us that there is a need with the British legal system to differentiate clearly between a malicious decision to end somebody's life and a compassionate, caring assistance for somebody who has made an absolutely unequivocal um, decision that they want to end their life.
0: She explained what would have happened if she'd lost her legal battle.
2: I would probably have already gone to Switzerland and, or found a different way to die. I cannot open a, um, a bottle of tablets. I can't take tablets out of a blister pack. But I'm certainly not ready to die. I want to live in an independent and positive way. I want to be taken seriously. And I don't want resources that, I, that because a doctor decides certain resources should be used on me. Because social services in the city council decide I must have this and I must do that in order to tick their boxes. That isn't taking into account my wishes and I think that we need to, there are scarce resources, but we need not to waste them on um, situations where people don't want them and rather direct them to ways they can be more use.
0: Baroness Mary Warnock, an authority on medical ethics, said the Gilderdale verdict was important because it reflected the view of the public.
1: The thing that seems to me most important of all about this case is this, that it was the jury who unanimously, and after a very short time, decided to find her not guilty and the judge obviously agreed with that but I think the fact that it was the jury is very important because the jury represents ordinary people.
0: Baroness Warnock pointed out that people's families must be taken into account. There
1: are people who want to die um, for very many reasons. I mean let's, let's confine this to people who are either terminally ill or who have a long long future of let's say total paralysis uh, in front of them with no cure Um, those people may genuinely want to die and I think there is such a thing as a wish to die and part of this wish to die may be the wish not to become a burden to their families now this is always put forward as a terrible idea if all your life you've um, regarded yourself as a sort of provider for your families and looking after their interests nothing could be more natural than wanting to die when the positions are reversed and you know that you are a burden to your families and I just must say that I think you can want to die for partly not entirely but partly altruistic reasons, not to want to be in that position. And I just want that motive to be recognised as a respectable motive. Well, during
0: the Observer debate, David Morris, campaigner for the rights of disabled people, called for a national conference on the subject. He insisted that everyone's life should have equal worth by law. You'll hear Baroness Finlay echoing his point. I think um, we we need to focus on the rights of us all to make choices. I, I think... We really need to have much, much more detailed discussion. I think we should have a national conference looking at this issue because we are, uh, we are only scratching the surface here. And um, it's about, as we, we need to demonstrate as a society, maximising all of our potential to contribute to society and taking away that fear of dying and allowing people to be in a place where the end of life is as
5: positive as it can be, um, but focusing on life itself uh, and the potential there. I I want people to have choices, true choices, so they can live well and they can die well, not that they feel that the only solution to the situation they find themselves in is to foreshorten their life and end their life early and that we don't frame a law which drives us down that road.
0: Baroness Finlay made the point that if doctors were to be consulted about assisted dying, they might influence their patient's decision.
5: I think that it is really important that when you have a discussion about autonomy, autonomy, you also recognise the power of the clinician, the doctor, over the vulnerable patient and the power of the doctor to persuade them, however subtly, that actually they would be better off down one path or another. If you really want to have that discussion, then have that discussion completely outside the medical care and the medical context in which that person's being treated, so that you drive up the duty on the clinicians to talk to the patient and listen to them and their needs and do all they can to meet those needs. And if you want to have some kind of vetting process, then take it completely outside clinical care because you will not respect autonomy if you let the person in power over the patient also be involved in that decision.
0: Debbie Purdy argued passionately that it was a question of the rights of an individual to decide...
2: I think the idea that this is about a right to die is, is not true. It's about a right to live, about the right for our lives to be treated with respect, that it's our choice about how we live it. It's nobody else's. It's not a doctor. It's not a social worker. And it's not the members of the House of Lords. They can't decide what, de- what determines the quality of my life. Only I can do that. Well, what would you
0: do? Here's Evan Harris MP. Well, I would just ask listeners and readers to consider whether if it was them, and they were of sound mind and weren't being coerced and were terminally ill and were suffering unbearably, that they would think, as we know the majority of people do, that they should have the right, after consultation with doctors, after getting it checked with a second opinion, checked for coercion, that they should have the right to choose a death with dignity and not have someone else, whether it be uh, a doctor or a nurse or a politician, or even a bishop, telling them that they don't have that right. It is their life. Evan Harris, and you can tell us what you think by leaving a comment on today's podcast page at guardian.co.uk slash guardian daily. Afua Hirsch, our legal affairs correspondent, should the law be changed?
3: Well, I think the reason that we're getting into these quite complex distinctions between the law and policy is because, essentially, what people who want to take their own life argue is that the law should be changed. Um, At the moment, there has been quite a high profile attempt to change law on assisted suicide. That was the case of Diane Pretty, which went all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. And it was held that our law is not a violation of human rights. So the courts are now saying there's no basis to argue the law should be changed. So instead, people like Debbie Purdy have been finding these more creative arguments. What they really want is the law to change, but the courts have already said that's not going to happen. So they're having to find other ways of arguing it. But campaigners are saying, especially in light of the Inglis and Gilderdale case, that the law is totally Ill- ill-equipped to deal with these scenarios. And we should have a law that recognises Assisted dying and assisted suicide, and doesn't put them all in these rather clumsy categories of suicide and murder. Um, And the other thing is this development on um, advanced decisions, which is a document that you can make in advance of being in a position where you might want to die that indicates your wishes. So that somebody in um, Frances Inglis's situation, now Inglis was convicted of murder, but had her son before he went into a vegetative state, indicated that he would want to die and he would want somebody to administer a fatal dose of heroin. The situation would have been very different. Um, So that's already available. The problem is many people don't realise they can make these advanced decisions. Doctors don't really seem to know very much about them. So they're not being used anywhere near as widely as they would to make a difference.
0: Do the laws on mercy killings and assisted suicides reflect the views of the public?
3: I think that's a really good question. I I don't think there's a straight answer. And one of the problems in this area is that there are such strongly held views on both sides. Um, There is a a pro-assisted dying lobby that feels very strongly. In this age, we have so much control over our lives. Um, And the courts have so much control as well. The courts can order somebody in a vegetative state to have their treatment stopped. So they do essentially die. And what those campaigners say is that The law hasn't kept up with that and, you know, it doesn't make sense for the government or the courts to be able to make these decisions when you can't make them yourself about how you die, especially as people are living longer and so on. They want to have more control over the way they die. On the other side, there are right to life groups, um, uh, often religious groups, who feel that any measure to legalise dying interferes with the sanctity of life and that it's a slippery slope to people who are ill having their lives taken when they don't want to, vulnerable people being taken advantage of, people who are suffering the burden of caring for somebody, um, feeling that it's okay to end their life because they don't want to care for them anymore. Um, and I think that this debate is has been going for a long time, it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere because people feel so strongly on both sides. But meanwhile, in the middle, public opinion is changing, I think, and people are interested in these cases and they want to have a conversation about the ethical questions they raise.
0: Baroness Warnock in the Observer's Roundtable discussion there um, made the point that it was a jury that uh, delivered the verdict on uh, Mrs Gildedale so that did in some way reflect public opinion.
3: Yeah, and we actually saw the director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, come out after that case and quite unusually make a statement because he came under criticism for having prosecuted it in the first place. Um, And his statement said very clearly that where there is evidence that one person has taken another's life, even if the circumstances are compassionate, um, it will often be in the public interest to prosecute. Um, I think I have sympathy for that position because the law at the moment is that it's illegal um, and the the job of prosecutors is to prosecute illegal acts. So I think that blaming prosecutors is really the wrong thing. I think we should look at why the law is causing them to act in that way in the first place. But I think the advantage of uh, a prosecution going to court is that it does then ultimately end up with the jury who are able to take these other factors into account. Um, and in the Gilderdale case, they obviously felt very strongly that she shouldn't be culpable for really fulfilling the wishes of her daughter and that was more, I think the really key factor is the fact that her daughter was competent and had made the decision herself and her mother was really acting on her wishes and I suspect the members of the jury thought if they'd have been in that position they would have wanted their mother or relative to uh, carry out their wishes as well.
0: Afwa, many thanks and don't forget that on Sunday you can listen to more of that Observer debate and read the highlights at observer.co.uk. And don't forget, there's a special edition of Politics Weekly today, which you can listen to after Tony Blair gives evidence to the Chilcot Inquiry to Iraq. It'll be available later today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.